Today's scripture comes from Titus 2, verse 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You may be seated. As we get seated, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Gracious God, we, we pray that you would be with us now. We pray that we would see wondrous things in your word. And would you be with the, the kids downstairs? Would they see wondrous things in your word? Would you be with the um, the, the teachers and the volunteers and the helpers as well. We ask these things for your glory and through your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. I want to add my welcome to John's welcome. My name is Sam. I'm on the team here, and it's my joy to open up God's Word with you this morning. We're going to start off with a question. <clears throat> What's your story? What's the story that you believe you are a part of? The Enuma Elish is an ancient story of how the world was created. There was a god named Marduk who was fighting another god. Marduk wins and uses the dead body of his enemy to create the heavens and the earth. He gets into another fight and he, and he defeats another enemy and uses the blood of that enemy to mix it with the clay of the earth to create humans. Now, humans were created to, to do the hard labor of, of, of maintaining the world, freeing up the gods and the deities to put up their feet and to enjoy themselves. Now, this is a true story that people really believed in. Imagine what life would be like if that was a story you believed you were a part of. Violence would just be a part of everyday life. Humans would have no value or dignity or worth or any hope because humans were created from the dead body of a defeated enemy and were created just to be slaves. You would live in constant fear and uncertainty because there are many gods and many deities who are fighting with each other. You never know who's going to win and where they, when they're going to decide to pick a fight with you. The point is this, the lives we live depend very much on the stories we believe we are a part of. Let me say that again. The lives we live depend very much on the stories we believe we are a part of. So what's your story? What's the story that you believe you are a part of? Survival of the fittest? Seize the day, trust the process, whatever makes you happy, what goes around comes around. All of us, all of us, every single one of us listening in this room, whether we realize it or not, we live our life based on a story or stories we believe we are a part of. Survival of the fittest means I do whatever I can to get ahead because the story says the ends always justify the means. Seize the day means that I take responsibility for my life because the story says only I am in charge of what happens to me. 
Trust the process means I work hard and make sacrifices because the story says things will eventually work out for those who help themselves. You see, the lives we live depend on the stories we believe we are a part of. And in the Bible, God reveals to us the Christian story, the story of who we are, who God is, and what God's plans are for the world and His interactions with the world. Christmas is a time for us to remember a particularly important chapter in the Christian story, the story of how God became human to live among His people. And that's what we're going to be unpacking in the next three weeks of this Advent series in Titus 2, 11-14. We're going to be spending three weeks in this passage, and for this week, we're going to be focusing on verse 11. We're going to be focusing on verse 11 and three things that verse 11 reminds us about the Christian story and what it means for the story of our lives. The three points are this, the grace of God, the cost of grace, and the appearance of grace. I'm going to say that again. The grace of God, the cost of grace, and the appearance of grace. And so to our first point, the grace of of God. The book of Titus, the passage that we're reading from, is a letter written by Paul to a guy named Titus. And in this letter, our passage, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, stands out in the letter because while most of the letter, Paul is talking, giving them instructions on how to live, in 2 verses 11 to 14, he's talking about why they should live that way. The clue is in the first word of verse 11. Some of us may have spotted it already, the word for. For the grace of God has appeared. The word for means that Paul is explaining the reason, the basis, the motivation for all the instructions he gives in the rest of the letter. So we're going to take our time working through today verse 11 because verse 11 is the key to unlocking all the verses. So let's dig in. Grace. Grace means favor that you don't deserve. It means getting favor that you haven't earned and avoiding punishment that you may deserve. <clears throat> grace is like when you go to a restaurant and have a great meal and, and, then, and then you ask for the bill and, and, and the waiter says somebody's already paid for it. Grace is when you're driving in the car and you don't see the other car coming towards you, and so you turn into the car, you collide into the car, it's all your fault, and then you get out and the guy says, don't worry about it, it's okay. The grace of God is Paul's summary of God's grace for us, that we have all sinned, that we all deserve death, but that God, because He is gracious, sent His Son to live the life we cannot live, and to die the death that we deserve, so that we can live the life that we don't deserve, a life of flourishing and joy in relationship with the one we were created to worship and enjoy. It's a story of God's grace because God is showing us favor that we have not earned in defiance of the punishment and judgment that we do deserve. Even as we describe the story of God's grace, we see that God's grace and salvation come together, don't they? Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that God's grace is like pocket money for us to spend on whatever we want. But, but that's not how it works. God's grace is for salvation. Look at verse 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared 
bringing salvation for all people. Grace and salvation come together. You can't understand God's grace apart from salvation because God's grace is revealed by His salvation. It brings salvation for all people, bringing us back into right relationship with God. Christmas is the time we remember God's grace in sending His Son to bring us salvation. You see, grace was the reason that God chose Mary to give birth to His Son. It has nothing to do with anything Mary did to deserve it. Look at what the angel said to Mary in Luke 1 verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour, grace, with God. Grace was the reason God sent His Son, and grace was the mission God sent His Son for. Look at John 1.14. And the Word, referring to Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We see here, don't we, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, for all people. If you don't consider yourself a Christian, would you consider this invitation today to take hold of God's salvation for you? You see, God has put eternity in our hearts. He's written a story that we are all to be part of and our hearts will be restless until we find our rest in the story God has written for us. All you need to do to respond to God's grace is to put your faith in Him. If you don't know what that looks like, you can talk to the person you came with. You can talk to John or myself, or, or, and we would love to bring you through the next steps. For those of us who do consider ourselves Christians, is grace just something we talk about, or is grace something we are living out of? Before we answer this question too quickly, hear these words from theologian J.I. Packer. He writes, many people pay lip service to the idea of grace, but there they stop. Their conception of grace is not so much debased as non-existent. The thought means nothing to them. It does not touch their experience at all. Talk to them about the church's heating or last year's accounts, and, and they are with you at once. But speak to them about the realities to which the word grace points, and their attitude is one of deferential blankness. They do not accuse you of talking, about, of talking nonsense. They do not doubt that your words have meaning, but they feel that whatever it is that you are talking about, it is beyond them. And the longer they have lived without it, the surer they are that they are at their stage of life, they do not really need it. A couple of days ago, our community group guys went out for dinner. And we were looking at a menu and we we're trying to figure out what to order. Well, those of us who had never been there before, we, we, were, we were looking at the menu and we were looking at the descriptions and thinking, what sounds good? But there were a couple of us who, who had been there before and so they knew exactly what they wanted to order even before they got there. <laughs> because they had tasted what was good and they knew what they wanted and so what we ended up doing is half of us just ended up ordering what they ordered. 
The question is this, is God's grace something we have just read about on the menu or have we tasted of God's grace? Do you see the difference? Is God's grace just something we have read about or is it something we have tasted? See, a life that has tasted of God's grace would, would, would be transformed in our posture towards God, towards ourselves, and towards each other. Is our posture towards God one of thankfulness? Or is it a posture of entitlement, thinking that we deserve salvation? See, someone who has tasted of God's grace will go through life thankful, knowing how sinful he or she is and the depth of God's grace in forgiving us our sins. Thankless people have nothing to thank God for because they think that God owes them. Is God's grace a necessity you desperately need or is it a luxury you can afford to live without? When we think of the birth of Jesus, that God Himself will come to live among us, do our hearts sing with thanksgiving or our hearts silent with apathy? And how about our posture towards ourselves? Do we have grace for ourselves? How do you respond when we make mistakes? Do we just beat up ourselves and grit our teeth and vow to try harder next time? Do we store up our past mistakes in our minds to replay them to torment ourselves? Or do we ask God for help so that we can forgive ourselves just as God has already forgiven us? Do we ask God for help so that we can trust that He will work out good even when we have made mistakes. Christ said it's been a hard year. It's been a hard few years. COVID and coming out of COVID and inflation and a possible recession and getting scammed by someone pretending to be Rogers and <laughs> maybe that's just me. So many of you have sent screenshots of these kind of messages to me since then. <laughs> I'm glad I've served you. Some of us have thrived and some of us have struggled. As we come to that time of year when we look back and we look ahead, will we have grace for ourselves? And how about our posture towards others? How do we respond when others make mistakes? Do we snap or are we patient just as Christ is so patient with us? Do we hold a grudge or do we choose to forgive just as Christ has forgiven us? This Christmas, when we meet family and friends that we would rather not meet, and, and we, we, we have some, would we respond with grace or with a grudge? See, a life that has tasted God's grace over time will learn to cultivate thankfulness towards God and grace to ourselves and to each other. We need to be careful here. The point here isn't trying to force ourselves to create thankfulness. 
It isn't to try and put on a mask of being gracious to ourselves and to each other because that misses the point completely. The only way you can cultivate a thankful heart is to see what you, are, you have to be thankful for. Do you see the difference? You can't just tell a person, be thankful, but you can say, look to the one you are thankful to. We won't always feel thankful. Because thankfulness that we're looking at here is, is more than just a feeling, it's a posture. And we, we can ask God, even when we, have, we don't feel we have anything to be thankful for, even when we do not feel thankful, we can ask God for His help to, to claim thankfulness, to see what we truly have to be thankful for in spite of all circumstances and ask Him to help us cultivate thankfulness. You see, the only way to cultivate a gracious heart is to see how gracious God has been to us and to respond to Him as His Spirit pours His love into our hearts. So first point, the grace of God. Is there grace in our story? Second point, the cost of grace. The cost of grace. There was one time I brought out a bunch of youths for dinner. And it was really interesting because you can tell a lot about them based on what they ordered and how they ate. You see, I was the one paying the bill. Many of them ordered much more than they could eat and they didn't finish their food. But there was this one boy, and this was surprising because he was actually the chief troublemaker, who responded very differently. You see, he ordered exactly what he needed and he finished every last bit of his food. It turns out he came from a very different background from the others. He came from a broken home with very little money. All the other boys took the food for granted because they were used to someone else putting food on the table. They didn't care about the cost of the food. But for this boy, he had experienced what it was like to have no food. He often had to find food for himself. And so in a very profound way, he appreciated the cost of the food in a way that the rest of the boys didn't or couldn't. Isn't our relationship with God like that sometimes? We take God's grace for granted because we ignore the cost of His grace. But here's the thing, grace always costs something. Always. There's no such thing as free dinner. The bill, there's always a bill that has to be paid. You see, grace means that salvation is free to us, but someone has to pay the bill. And the price for our salvation was God Himself. Look at verse 14, he writes about Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. The price of our salvation was God Himself. Jesus had to give Himself to redeem us. Meaning, He had to pay the price to free us from the consequences of lawlessness, the consequences of sin. 
the consequence of falling short of God's perfect standard. Because that's how justice works, isn't it? If there's something wrong, if there's a wrong, there must be a consequence. If there's sin, there must be judgment. And we don't like to talk about judgment, but deep down, we actually all agree with this because deep down, we all demand justice. You see, everyone is all for grace until they are the ones who have to pay the bill. That's why when someone commits a crime and they get off with a a lighter sentence or no sentence at all, there are riots on the streets. Because deep down, we know that when there is a wrong, it has to be righted. Because we demand justice. And so because of our sin, we deserve judgment. Separation from God forever. And the only way we can be redeemed, meaning the only way we can be free from the penalty of our sin is for someone else to take the penalty. That someone else needs to be innocent. You you can't have another criminal say, I'm in prison anyway, I'll just tack on your sentence to mine. That's not how it works. Christmas is a reminder of the only innocent one who came to walk this earth. Christmas is a reminder of the cost of God's grace because Jesus was the only one who could serve our sentence. Jesus was the only one who was innocent and he was the only one who could and did live the perfect life. And so he was the only one who could redeem us from our sins. Christmas is a reminder of the start of God's rescue plan for all humanity. You see, Jesus came to earth to live the perfect life we could not live so that he could save his people from their sins at the cost of his own life. Look at what the the angel told Joseph just before Jesus was born, Matthew 1.21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Christ City, in the story of our lives, do we see the cost of God's grace? Writer Dietrich Bonhoeffer makes the contrast between cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace is taking grace while ignoring the cost. He writes this, Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace is grace without price. Grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost is infinite, the possibilities of using it and spending it are infinite. Christ City, in the story of our lives, do we see the cost of God's grace? How should we ask ourselves this? Here are some things to think about. In the story of our lives, do we have categories to call out sin for what it is? You see, that wasn't just an unkind word, that was sin. That wasn't just an impure thought, that was sin. That wasn't just being short-tempered, that was sin. That wasn't just being selfish or competitive or ambitious or overly ambitious, that was sin. 
I was having a bad day, but, but, but that was still sin. See, the thing is, talking about sin is less and less fashionable these days, isn't it? Which is part of why talking about Jesus is less and less fashionable these days. You see, people who can't see their sin will never understand the cost of God's grace because they don't see the need for what they need a saving from. People who can't see their sin will reject Jesus because they can't see their need for a saviour. But when our eyes are open to see sin, to see sin for what it is, not only will we cry out for a saviour, we will want to turn away from sin. I remember there was this one time um, my family went on a long vacation back in Singapore to come back and find out that our fridge had lost power midway through. Now, now Singapore is hot and humid. So you can imagine what the fridge smelled like when we opened it, can't you? When we opened the fridge, the smell of the rotting food just hits you like a ton of bricks. And it just stays there. You want nothing more than to just slam the door and just turn around and run away. That's what happens when we see and smell sin for what it truly is. When the stench of sin hits you, when you see how it rots and corrupts and destroys, you want nothing more than to slam the door and run away. Another word for that is repentance. A life which, which sees and smells the rot of sin and the cost of God's grace to save us from that sin will want nothing more than to slam the door and run in the other direction. A life which sees the cost of grace will be a life of repentance. Not always perfect repentance. There'll be ups, there'll be downs, but when you take a step back, you'll see a pattern of repentance. Like playing with a yo-yo on an escalator. The yo-yo goes up and down, but it's still going up. You see, Jesus came to redeem us and repentance comes hand in hand with the redemption that Jesus came to give us. Turning from sin, slamming the door on sin and walking the other way, away from sin and following Christ. Walking in the new life of joy and flourishing as His people. Look at verse 14 again. It talks about Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ city is there repentance in our story. Have we slammed the door on sin and gone the other direction? So first point, the grace of God. Is there is the grace of God in the story of our lives. Second point, the cost of grace. Does the story of our lives have the cost of God's grace? 
Is there redemption? Is there repentance? And lastly, the appearance of grace. The appearance of grace. Look at verse 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The word appeared also has the idea of light shining in the darkness. Luke uses it when, 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 when recounting being caught in a storm at sea in, 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 at night. Look at Acts 27 verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared, that's the word we have, appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. It's the same word that Zechariah used when he prophesied about the coming of Jesus. Look at Luke 178. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light, that's the same phrase, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to, gi- to guide our feet into the way of peace, Christ city. The appearance of the grace of God was much more than just the birth of a baby. It was the first flicker of sunrise after the darkness of night. It was the first sign of hope in an ocean of despair. Do you see the difference? A child was born, but more than that, hope was born into this world. Even as we live with sin, and we live with the effects of sin in a fallen world, we can ask God to help us to take comfort by faith, even when we can't feel it. Even when we cannot see hope, know this, Christ, hope has come, and His name is Jesus. The grace of God has appeared. It was the moment the prophet Isaiah was writing about in Isaiah 9 verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Christ city, do we believe that the grace of God has appeared? Christmas is a season for us to remember that the Christian story is is not no mere myth. The Christian story is based on historical, verifiable fact that the grace of God truly appeared, that Jesus truly walked this earth. The people saw him as clearly as you see each other in this room right now. In the story of your life, is the birth of Jesus just a myth or is it historical fact? In the story of your life, is it just historical fact or is it a reminder of eternal hope? Do we live as those who have hope? Or do we live as those who have none? Christmas reminds us that no matter how deep the darkness, no matter how long the night might seem, sunrise has come. We can dare to have joy because the light of the world has already come. He has pierced the darkness 
And one day there will be no more darkness. Because the light of Christ would have completely overcome all darkness there is in this world. Let me end with a story. Tim Keller talks about the writer Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers was a writer who wrote a series of detective stories. <clears throat> and the main character in these stories was the Lord Peter Whimsey. Through the first part of the series, Lord Peter Whimsey is portrayed as an unhappy, broken bachelor. But halfway into this series, a new character appears, a lady named Harriet Vane. Harriet Vane is, is described as one of the first women to, to graduate from Oxford. And she's a writer of mystery novels. Harriet and Peter fall in love, and Harriet helps to heal Peter. Here's the thing. Dorothy Sayers, the writer, she was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. She was also a writer of mystery novels. You see, what had happened was that the writer Dorothy Sayers saw that Lord Peter Whimsey was in trouble. She saw that the character in her story needed help. He needed someone to come in to help mend and heal him. So you know what she did, right? She wrote herself into the story. She looked at the world that she had created and out of love for the character she had created, she wrote herself into the story to heal her character. Christ City, God loved us so much, He wrote Himself into the story. But more than that, there was no one else who could save us from our sins. So he wrote himself into our story to save us from our sins. To pierce the darkness, to bring sunrise at the end of the longest night. Christ City, what's your story? What story are you a part of? The grace of God has appeared, would you let him into your story? Let's stand as we respond to God's word together.